It is my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker for this morning. He is a well-known revolutionary. Robert Egger is the founder, president, and CEO of DC Central Kitchen. DC Central Kitchen is one of the largest community kitchens in the United States. It has been on the cutting edge since its founding and sets the pace for the entire industry. Robert is an author. He takes no prisoners. He has been notably vocal about the nonprofit sector taking chances, getting out of its own way, and being willing to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Robert's new book is Begging for Change, The Dollars and Cents of Making Nonprofits Responsive, Efficient, and Rewarding for All. One thing I'd like to say about Robert is that he does his work at max volume. And I think that's something that our movement is absolutely ready for. So without further ado, I am happy to introduce Robert Egger. This thing gets on. There we go. Good morning. Oh, you know, I didn't mean for you to do that. That's already been done. Um, I, I like speaking this way. I hope you don't mind. Um, I ran nightclubs. Uh, for the longest time, and I'm not a big fan of barriers or stages, but this is as close as we'll get. Anyway, um, I am so happy to be here, um, quite honestly, um, for a million different reasons, first of which um, I really, really, really like Kansas City. I, I've had a lot of time here, um, and in fact, in the uh, 1990s, I came here quite a bit, probably about 15 times, and I stayed either at this hotel or at the Westin. Um, but if I may, um, one of the things I really liked about Kansas City then, um, which makes me happy to come back now, because it's been a, probably about eight years since I've been here, um, is if you walk out the building and you walk, I guess, that way, um, there's a train station. And now it's a, a, um, a science museum. And maybe, some of you maybe noticed it. But when I first started coming here, it was empty. It was derelict. Um, and I've got to be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm a romantic. I love that building. And I looked at it all the time, because if you notice up the hill, there's a big monument up there to World War I. Um, veterans, and primarily men and women who didn't come back. Um, and I used to look at that train station um, and just imagine um, the train, I mean, the, 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 the young men and women who just poured out of middle America and went into that train station and waved goodbye to their family as they went off first to World War I and then to World War II. And just imagine when you stand out in that parking lot, imagine the reunions, you know, when you didn't know, I mean, it's not like the internet or anything. I mean, you know, when you went off to war, you were gone. There was no phone calls. You might get a letter. You know, but, but just the, the whole idea of that train station, of people pouring in, and literally wagons, wagons, driving young men off the farm of middle America and dropping them off at that train station and waving goodbye. Um, and then, for those lucky enough, um, to welcome them home. And I'm just amazed when I stand out in that parking lot and just, you can feel that energy. And when you look down the road at Kansas City, those young men and those young women who came back, and they had given up their youth. It was gone. I mean, you know, they went off and fought. Um, and when they came back, they took what was, in effect, the greatest um, industry in the world. And for all intents and purposes, it was the last industrial base standing in the world. Um, and this industrial base in America, which had been turning out tanks and planes, switched over to do cars and tractors and a million other things. Um, and there were jobs aplenty. 
And at the same time, we had probably the greatest food system the planet had ever seen. And those young men and women dove into America. They roared out of that train station, loaded for bear. They were ready for anything. And, they, and you look down the road, you see Kansas City, they built that city. And they built every American city. Um, you know, they built the interstates. They built everything. And this country, um, and quite frankly, brothers and sisters, the nonprofit sector um, was born out of what was left over, the extra, the extra money. In my case, many of you all maybe read my bio, I, I, I get food. Restaurants, hotels, hospitals, caters. At the end of the night, they have food left over. We have refrigerated trucks. We go pick it up, bring it back to a central kitchen uh, where we train unemployed men and women, men and women out of prison, men and women coming out of mental health programs, drug treatment programs. Men and women are just underemployed and want to lift up. We train those men and women. And like a million nonprofits, literally, we grew based on the extra of America. Extra money, extra food, extra clothes, extra time for volunteers. And to a certain extent, and it's understandable, we have come to believe that that's just America. That somehow we were destined and that somehow this is this forever. And in fact, universities now, young men and women are surging out of universities for all intents and purposes, assuming that with that degree they just got, um, oftentimes a master's degree, oftentimes at great expense, that they are going to walk out into an environment in which they're going to basically walk right out and get a job and get a house and get a car and a cat and a dog and a vacation and a family. Um, and that's just assumed, understandably. The reality is, brothers and sisters, we've had a great run in America. We've had a great run. But again, don't forget, that run was predicated on the rest of the world for all intents and purposes purposes being in rubble. And the rest of the world's caught up. And the era of extra in which nonprofits have grown from about 100,000 in the 1950s to well over 1.4 million now, that era of extra is going to come to an end. You can see two big things coming in this country. That first generation that came through those doors, coming back from Europe and the Pacific, they're getting old. There's 80 million people getting old in America. You know, 1946, the baby boomers. 1963, the first baby boomer just turned 60 last year. 80 million people are about to get old in America. And brothers and sisters, um, there's no big plan for what we're going to do with these men and women. Meals on wheels. Meals on wheels. Everybody knows meals on wheels, right? Half of American cities have a waiting list for meals on wheels today, right now as we wake up. And there's 80 million people coming. The other half of the world is just caught up, and we're going to have to compete like we never have before in a different kind of economy. Um, you all maybe saw, everybody knows what's going on in Darfur, right? Everybody knows what's going on in Darfur? A couple of months ago, the president of China went to Sudan, and the president of China basically said to the leader of Sudan three things. How'd you like an uh, interest-free loan to build a new presidential palace? We'll buy every drop of oil you can pump, and we don't care what you do in Darfur. That's who we're competing with. You know, again, there's a generation of kids that are graduating schools in Brazil, in Saudi Arabia, and all around the world, and they want their piece of the action. So the, the inevitable, when I was a young man, a good example of this, um, my father was in the Marines. Um, and the old man loved to pack all six of his kids in a car and drive around America. 
Whenever he had some time off, man, he'd put us in the car and off we'd go. And again, I'm sure many of you all grew up in that era, six kids in a station wagon, no seatbelts, dad smoking like a chimney up front, um, you know, threatening to pull the car over at every stop. Um, but the point is, he loved driving us around. And I remember as a kid, we went, we drove through Detroit. And Detroit, back then, was roaring. Detroit was Mustang and Motown. And it was on fire. And in fact, if you went back in time and you stood in the middle of Detroit and said, you know, in 30 years, this is going to be a ghost town. People would have laughed. Are you crazy? People are going to buy foreign cars? Uh-uh, not while Ford's around. Well, look at Detroit now. Again, God bless Detroit, but the point is, no one could have predicted, just like you couldn't have predicted that Buffalo and a hundred other American cities that were built on an industrial age, that that was going to go. The textile mills of the Carolinas. The reality is, brothers and sisters, there's a high degree of likelihood that we're going to see, just as blue collars left America in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, we're going to start to see white collar jobs go too. And that's where we find each other. And I, I wanted to set that stage not to get you down, but to really just say, in effect, all bets are off. Hunter S. Thompson, one of my favorite writers, once said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. <laughs> That's us, brothers and sisters. Um, this, is, this is it. And I wanted to start off, if I may, I'm not up here to tell you how to do this. Because you're here, you're here for the next few days, and you're going to be bathed in how. There's a million different people here that can tell you amazing, bold, powerful ways in which you can do your job better, faster, stronger. If I may, I'd like to talk to you about why. Because that's where I come from. I gotta be honest with you. I always say, you know, I love my job. I really do, I love my job, but I despise my work. Because at the end of the day, even though the kitchen is a program, and I invite any of you all to come to Washington, please come and visit. Um, I love the DC Central Kitchen. It's in the basement of one of the nastiest shelters in America. Um, it's not a glory place. Um, you know, again, we feed poor people. Um, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, what I do is very efficient. It's very smart. It's logical. We get food that would have been thrown away. We take people our society undervalued, a kitchen that was underutilized, volunteers who wanted to be part of something powerful, uh, men and women who needed jobs, chefs who had jobs and were willing to help teach, um, agencies that were buying food when, when they really wanted to use their money to liberate people. That all existed. All we did was come along and move around existing resources, turn them upside down, took them out of, put them in non-traditional roles. Um, but at the end of the day, you know who I feed? You know who's poor? I mean, who's hungry in America? The face of hunger. If you had to pick a face, um, it's amazing. It's not a kid. It's not an old person. It's a working mom. That's who's hungry in America. It's a woman who has a job and sometimes two. And oftentimes she got a job because of you all. And she's doing everything right, everything we've asked her to do. But at the end of the day, she's not making it on eight, nine, ten, eleven dollars an hour. Not in this economy, and I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, not in the economy that's coming. That's what we got to do. So again, while I love what I do, what I do is a means to develop a larger conversation. I must admit, a few years ago um, in Washington, D.C., um, <laughs> I'm going to warn you, make, make mental note, never make a decision after two pitchers of beer. Um, <laughs> Our local United Way in Washington, D.C. was on fire. Um, and I had been on vacation, so to speak, and I came back and I was amazed um, that no one had kind of jumped in the middle of it. And again, two pictures later, I'll take over. Four days later, I had the job. Craziest job I ever had. And I did it for nine months, and it was really an interim thing. But the point is, um, when I was done, I decided I wanted to go off to India. Just wanted to get away. Just wanted to get away 
from Washington, D.C. for a little bit. And it wasn't looking for any kind of romantic thing. I honestly, I w- I had, um, I'm a student of, of uh, liberation movements. I'm fascinated by liberators and movements like that. And I had read a teeny little footnote, teeny little footnote in a book about um, Gandhi and the Indian liberation movement. And it said that the British never, ever, ever, ever had more than 3,000 officers stationed on the ground in India. And again, my father's a Marine, so I'm pretty hip to the idea of you know, command structure and everything, but 3,000 men controlled 350 million people on an entire subcontinent for a century and a half, and I'm like, I'll bite, how'd they do that? And I figured that would be good, I'll go to India and find out. So I went thinking that I would t- it would take a couple of days, if not a, a week or two, to really go through you know, information, try and figure out where was the diabolical plot? How did they do this? And it's interesting because I went to Nehru's home, and Nehru is kind of the C- COO of India. Gandhi gets a lot of credit. Nehru had to really run the ship. Um, and his home's been converted into kind of a study center and, and uh, uh, museum for the independence movement. And I went there again, thinking, you know, literally that it was going to take a couple of days to figure this out. And honest to goodness, it took about 20 minutes, and I laughed out loud. I realized so quickly that as long as the British could keep Indians divided by race, caste, class, geography, language, and fighting one another, it was a piece of cake. I laughed out loud because that's the nonprofit sector in America. We fight each other. We chase after crumbs to keep our machines going instead of coming together to fight a common enemy. So what I'm here to to suggest is that while we're here, and I think what's really cool about Amy's vision and the board's vision, this organization's that sense of what we've done is great and we should be proud. Flowers are blooming in every American city, but there's a garden waiting to be tilled. And we can do this if we change the way we think. One of the things that most amazed me about my trip to India was another thing that really, that gave me a set of tactics. But I must admit there was another thing I learned that just completely changed the way I think. Um, And it's a Gandhi thing. Um, And again, by the way, when I talk about Dr. King, Cesar Chavez, um, Gandhi, I'm not interested in them as walking saints on earth. I'm interested in tacticians, what they do. Um, But Gandhi's entire thing was based on the, the, the oppressed and the oppressor are equally afflicted. We in the nonprofit sector oftentimes want to nurture the oppressed. And that's cool. It's, good. It's, it's what we do, and it's at our core. But i got to tell you, it's the oppressor, so to speak, the metaphorical oppressor that we never think about. And if I may, that's one of the things that is, is right at our doorstep. The message we have, the miracles we see, the things we've seen in our lives, in our organizations, men and women who... Our society has pretty much assumed our failures. They've been in prison. They've been in drug treatment programs. uh, They're homeless. um, They're single parents. um, They're marginalized in America. We have seen thousands, hundreds of thousands of these men and women rise up, take control of their lives, break all the odds, go up against Herculean um, odds, and, and win. Um, and it's not polka dots and moonbeams. We've seen men and women. And I think if we look at Muhammad Yunus, another example, Yunus went down to the very, very, very bottom. You know, street beggars in Nairobi. Um, you know, the poorest of the poor, where no one saw value. And he proved it existed there. That's an amazing thing. But we have to talk um, about this differently. Um, I've got to tell you, oftentimes we've wrapped this up in charity. And this isn't charity, brothers and sisters. This is our economic future. Amy's right. 
We're not talking about charity. We're not talking about poverty alleviation. This is America's future we're talking about. So when we come together like this, I must admit, I travel a lot. God bless America. I always say, feed the poor, get to travel, only in America. But I've been to so many different gatherings, and I've got to tell you, social entrepreneurship, microfinance, alternate currencies, sustainable agriculture, time banking, we're all touching something new. One of the reasons I'm so happy to be here in Kansas City, if you go up on the hill, and by the way, I'm a walker. I love to walk, and I walk almost every day. And I notice some people, if anybody wants to get up tomorrow morning, about 6.30 or so and go for a walk, I can take you. I've, I've walked all over this town. But right up on the hill, frankly, a little bit overgrown, because I saw it this morning, is a um, statue to the spirit of pioneer women. Um, and I, again, I'm fascinated by the notion of pioneers. And if I can suggest that that's what you all are here to do today, just like historic Kansas City. You know, right up the road here in Independence was the last freshwater spring before you went west. Um, that's what Kansas City is for this movement right now, brothers and sisters. You're not micro anything. You're pioneers for a brand new economy. Um, you know, I've been doing a crazy experiment, and I shouldn't even go here. Um, as you can tell, I just talk. I don't have a speech, you know. Um, <laughs> And sometimes I, I, I go places I know I shouldn't, but you know, if I can, there's a crazy experiment I've been doing in which I'll go to rooms like this full of men and women who were working nonprofits and oftentimes direct service people like me. And I'll say, how many of you all, you're, you're underpaid, you're overworked, you're undervalued. How many of you all would quit your jobs and go work in a for-profit company? Nobody raises their hand. And you know, conversely, if you go to a room full of people who work in business, and you say, in effect, you all are paid well, compensated handsomely. Um, how many of you all, if you could leave your job, though, and go work in the community and make your community a better place to work, how many of you all would really like to do that? The hands shoot up in the air. You know, um, Newton talked about gravity. For decades, centuries, people have been trying to come up with some kind of um, understanding, some way to grasp the notion of this binding force. And it wasn't until Newton... Galileo came close, but he was threatened with excommunication, so he had to back off. But Newton came up with this basic uh, universal principle that bound the world together. But think about it. Gravity was invisible. You really couldn't see it. You couldn't feel it. In theory, you couldn't touch it. You couldn't smell it. But he proved it existed, and it held everything together. I would, I would urge us to think that while we look at Kansas City and the rest of America, and to a certain extent, we can genuflect to capitalism. And the fact that it grew because people had the ability, the freedom, and the resources to grow. To a certain extent, my daughter, who's about to graduate high school, I was thinking about her the other day because when she was a kid, she used to love the book The Lorax. Um, and there was a term in there I love, and it was called They Got Bigger and Bigger and Bigger. Um, and to a certain extent, our economy, after World War II, we always genuflated to big. You know, uh, your fortune wasn't good enough unless it was bigger than the person who was richer than you yesterday. Your car wasn't big enough unless it was bigger than your neighbor's. You know, the skyscraper wasn't big enough unless it was bigger than the city next door. And we genuflected to bigger. But to a certain extent, what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen, and this invisible currency that I've just suggested, um, it's something that's there. And it's something that we're touching on, all of us in our work. Because what we're saying is there's an interesting um, invisible currency in America that binds community together. And there's different words for it, nonprofit, Charity, community, karma, um, whatever. But it's something that people seem to want. Millions of those baby boomers that grew up genuflecting to that economy 
They're surging into the nonprofit sector looking for something. Because I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, there's millions and millions of people looking in the mirror. And they've got everything physically, materially you could want, but they don't like what they see. There's something missing from their life. And what they seek and what they want is what we do every day. It's that notion that, you know what, in fact, God bless America, I love movies right across, and Kansas is where uh, Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz was set. And one of my favorite scenes in all the movies and all the history of the world is that last scene of that movie. Dorothy runs around all over Oz trying to find her way back home. And at the very end, you know what, it's one of my favorite lines. The next time I go looking for my heart's content, I won't look any further than my own backyard. That's what we do. We till the fields in our own backyards. And we show that there's gold in every single community. And what we make happen binds our communities together. I mean, God bless capitalism. But the point is what we're talking about is capitalism 2.0. And it's saying that maybe, just maybe, the great goal isn't necessarily helping people become microenterprised and own their own business so they can become billionaires, but so that they can help somebody else up. And inch by inch, step by step, our communities become stronger once again. Because ultimately, what most of us know is we've got to keep our money local. And you've got to pay people a decent wage. And you've got to give people health care. And you've got to be aware of child care. And these are what these small businesses do. That's one of the reasons, I've got to be honest with you, I love being an employer. I love being an employer. Because I love signing paychecks. I love seeing people happy with what they do. And that's what you all create. Um, you know, it's an amazing, amazing arsenal we have at our disposal today uh, and this week. And I'm just going to urge you, as I wind this thing down here, um, to dream big. John Lennon once said, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Um, I see a room full of dreamers. But unlike those who just imagine, you make it happen. This is your time. This is your week to go into this, to these sessions, to go out to lunches, to meet new friends, to dream big. Big, giant big, crazy big. This is America, gosh darn it. There's nothing too big. There's nothing too crazy. We invented the steam engine. We invented the silicon chip. What we do in America, we erase the lines. There's no lines for us. If it didn't work, let's try something new. We have to acknowledge that what we've done is great, but it hasn't liberated the number of people we wanted. And not just the people at this end, but the average rank-and-file Americans out there that give generously. People in this country are crazy, crazy generous. You know, they give like $250 billion a year to charity in America. They clearly want what we're selling. And what they want, to a certain extent, is what we've got. It's great stories. Great stories of people who've, who have overcome and are now contributing. Um, Americans are really desperate for this. And if I can give you one piece of rock-solid advice um, that I urge you to think about. We have to become marketers. We're the worst at telling our stories, all of us, in the nonprofit sector. It's still too much wrapped up in charity. But I've got to be honest with you, to a certain extent, many of us um, wait for newspapers to come to us. Um, how many of you all were in Halifax, by the way, for the microcredit summit? Anybody here? It was really an amazing place. And by the way, Halifax rocks. You should go there. Um, but I was amazed because I went to a session on marketing up there. And here was a, a group of people of which we are members of the tribe, their leader had won the Nobel Peace Prize. Ten years earlier, in the most audacious move possible, they set a goal. They set a goal, which is rare in the nonprofit sector. And God bless them, they met that goal. They wanted to liberate 100 million people out of poverty using microloans, and they did it. And I went to a session to talk about marketing, 
And I was waiting for this, and they said, in effect, okay, well, we're hoping to get some stories printed. And it's like, hoping? <laughs> hoping? Are you kidding? You know, think about this. The nonprofit sector in America, if you picked us up, I mean, again, this is churches, synagogues, mosques, it's universities, it's hospitals, it's art galleries, it's all of you, it's me. But if you pick us up and you put us down over here, we're the seventh biggest economy on the planet. We're in between India and China, charity in America. Yet, newspapers don't cover us as business. What Eunice does, what you do, what I do is business. It isn't charity. It isn't good deeds. And we have got to be on editors of business pages, pages like cheap suits until we get regular coverage every single day about what we do. Anyway, um, I'm going to be here. I, this is one of those rare moments for me, I've got to be honest. It's the, an honor to be asked to both kind of open, but I'll also be here to close the event. I'm going to be here on Friday. And in the meantime, I am going to be rubbing elbows with all of you. And I was lucky enough to get a printout of all the people here, so I have all your names. Um, I want, literally, I'm asking anybody, the craziest ideas, I want them. And I'm going to start checking your name off. Um, I, want, I want to have literally 400 crazy, badass ideas before I leave. Um, this is it, brothers and sisters. If you don't do it now, again, grab a hold of this week. Grab a hold of this conference. Make this your time. This is it. We are the new economy. Own it. Um, I'm here with you. I can't wait to talk more. Go get them. Thank you.